0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here today to you in Port Perry, Bowmanville, In the province of Ontario, around the world, welcome to this uh, second last week in this transformational series on spiritual gifts for our community. Uh, Today we're going to end with two last gifts. We're going to tackle gift tension head on, and we're going to talk about the grace we all need for each other as we keep going. And I just want to say right up front, today is going to be a lot. It's going to be a very interesting conversation, and so I hope you'll buckle up and get ready to go. The second last gift we're going to start talking about today is rarely mentioned now in our culture. It's the gift of celibacy. Mention this in public today, and most people will ask, is that even a thing anymore? In our sex-soaked culture, few things odder than any statement, let alone a life that is involved in sexual self-control. The word chastity is on the endangered vocabulary list, and there are fewer and fewer people, let alone Christians, willing to admit that chastity is a spiritual discipline we're all called to, let alone this could be a spiritual gift for some for a lifetime. And yet, if you do call yourself a Christian today, and I know some of you don't, but for we who do, we are all called into the practice of celibacy for a point to be more like Jesus. That is, we who are single, we who are single again, and even yes, we who are married, at times will be called to engage in this discipline. So let me start with the discipline and then I'll get to the gift. Here's an amazing definition of this discipline. Purposely turning away for a time from dwelling upon or engaging in the sexual dimension of our relationship with others, even our husband and wife, thus learning how not to be governed by this powerful aspect in our life. Paul works this out extensively in a chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he writes this in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and sexual immorality is that word pornea, where we get our word pornography from, and in that there's a whole list of things the Bible forbids. Since we're all tempted to this, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband, the husband should give to his wife her rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, her husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body his wife does in other words do not deprive each other except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come back together again so that satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control so paul says explicitly if you're married you first and foremost if you can't have permission to use the gift of sex you should not lower it you should not quench it you should not sort of resist the fire of that or out of fear or history or background no no this is a god-given gift and you have permission and you should go for it more regularly but he also says in first Corinthians 7 make clear he makes clear that chastity within marriage as a discipline is a temporary practice while the unmarried among us are expected to be celibate until they get married like other forms of chastity or, or fasting this is not a negative direction towards sexuality in fact it elevates it it elevates sexuality, because it actually is not letting a very beautiful thing govern our whole lives. And, and when we talk about the gift of and the discipline of celibacy and chastity, we need to go back to the very beginning, when God created us as human beings. The very first verse that always needs to come up in any conversation about sexuality in the biblical worldview is actually Genesis 1.1. It's the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And that's the starting point for us, and it always has been. God is creator, and we are his beautiful creation. And that implies that God has the final say. Creator implies design, authority, direction, artistic purpose, and final comment. Now on the sixth day of creation, God creates human beings and we're made in his image, in his likeness. We're the only creatures in creation that can know God, walk with God. We're the only ones that have the ability to know God and also we get to, because we're in his image, replicate creation. We are creators ourselves. But notice, unlike God himself, people have a sexual differentiation. God creates two types of humans, not one. He creates us male and female. And this is, again, so incredibly important that we get this as Christians, for the Christian community. We believe that God is a creator and God created gender. Gender is not socially constructed. Uh, Gender is not something we invent culturally. It is God-given. It is the creator's expression. It is his will and his design. And and we learn that these two types of humans made in the image of God complement each other. Genesis 2.24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother, united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, it says, and felt no shame. Now the Hebrew sense of this is that sex, the act of sex, is happening before the fall. In other words, what some churches started teaching that sin actually gave us sex. No, no, no. Sex is happening before the fall. It's good, it's loving, it's given to bond with each other, and it also gives the power for procreation, that gift of creation. But notice the phrase, one flesh. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it actually reads like this, and the two shall share one psyche. Sex binds us and blends us and connects us at the root of who we are. It's not just instinct, and it's not just an act. And if you read the Bible honestly and plainly, Jesus affirms this, Paul affirms this, the author of Hebrews, James, Moses, all the biblical writers and authors affirm that Adam and Eve are the model. It is what the Bible calls natural for it is instituted by our creator. Marriage reflects the image of God. And like the Trinity, when a husband and a wife have mutual sex, they become one flesh and yet they profoundly remain two different people. They share this bond. this this fundamental sameness yet remain two distinct people. And that is why marriage is uh, held so highly in the scriptures and that is why sex is amazing and beautiful but cannot be changed. By changing the nature or place of sex you stop reflecting the essence of God himself. And for Christians and that is it's an inside conversation for we who are Christians who personally know God through Jesus and walk with him and love him we may not change the nature of sex or the nature of marriage because God has spoken and we reflect him. But we also begin to see as we walk through the scriptures that marriage and singleness are reflections of the nature of the God we worship and love. In the same way we know that God is not three persons, but one God, we are monotheists, the great Jewish cry in Deuteronomy 6.4, O hear, O hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. In other words, marriage and singleness express God's nature, and both of these expressions are his will. They are two equally divine options rooted in our creator's makeup. Neither should marriage or singleness 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 be elevated or denigrated, both are needed for the whole church to see and to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Singleness is a God-given beautiful option and so is marriage. And also the Bible is clear. Let me repeat it again. Sex is good. Sex is God's invention. Sex is fun. Sex is not sinful. But it does become sinful and wrong when we go beyond the lines and the loving limits of our creator who is clearly spoken in the scriptures. And we who are called followers of Jesus, we are all called to participate in the discipline of celibacy. That is, we choose to deny ourselves of what we want, and what we desire, that goes beyond God's call or design. But if you keep reading 1 Corinthians 7, Paul moves from calling all of us to deny ourselves at points, and then says it's not just a spiritual discipline. Some of us have the spiritual gift of celibacy. And Paul says, and I'm an example of this. And you can read this in 1 Corinthians 7, 6. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Paul was single, and Paul loved it, and he viewed it as a holy calling, and without blushing or embarrassment, he said, I'm single, and actually I think way more people in the church should be single too. You can do so much more for God, he writes in 1 Corinthians 7. You can do so much more for the kingdom as a single person. When you're married, of course you can love God, but your interests are divided between you and your spouse, and if you have children, but if you're single, you can do so much more with your time and money and resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. But notice Paul goes further. He calls his singleness a gift. And if you read this in the original language, he uses the word charisma, where we get our modern word charismatic from. In other words, this is the word that Paul uses when he refers to all spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, et cetera. So Paul actually says, I have a supernatural God-given spiritual gift called celibacy that the spirit of God has deposited in me. And I find great joy when I do this. One person writes, the gift of celibacy is the special ability God gives certain members of the body of Christ to remain single and to enjoy it, to be unmarried and not suffer undue sexual temptation. Well, that doesn't mean, by the way, they have no sexual experience at all. It's just saying it's not undue. Now, though many of us do not have this gift, we are all called to the discipline of chastity and fasting, either by situation of life, we're not married, or if we're married, by an agreed upon mutual seeking of God. Of course, this does not deal with if there's sickness or issues physically, but this is the overall standard. Now, others of us here gathered today have the gift of celibacy, and if you talk to these people, they will find joy in being single and joy in this. Now, here's the real question we need to ask as we get going today. Why would any of us sitting here in 2019 in Canada or wherever you're listening be willing to even have this conversation? I mean, to deny what we want, to deny what some of us are, <laughs> to, to not be fulfilled. Remember, our culture screams at us all the time that sex is a right. And it also screams at us all the time that you will not be fully human. You can't be fulfilled if you're not having sex. You see this in the sitcoms all the time. When's the last time you had sex? Three months ago. Oh my goodness, how are you living? And the answer is simple. For we who've encountered the living God through Jesus Christ and his spirit and have profoundly encountered God in his love, we are now making the decision to love God more than our own lives. We're willing to lay down our rights and our wants and desires, no matter how strong they are, because Jesus is not just our savior, he's our Lord. But, it's easy to preach that. But we all have a mutual responsibility together in this moment. I love when one tweeted out this week, if our sex and marriage upholds the biblical guardrails of male-female covenantal union, but does not provide lasting solutions to loneliness, then it falls short of being a full Christian ethic. And what this pastor was basically saying is this, that it is our responsibility in this church, among us here, that we are called to provide exceptional community and genuine friendship with each other so loneliness does not become the door where we go back in sin. And if we are not giving our lives to each other, whether married or single, and building real friendships and real community, then loneliness wins every single time and the culture drags you back. But if we are Christians, and if Jesus is Savior and Lord, then these three verses bring home the whole ethic of Scripture. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee, run from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. war wars against their soul. It's like taking a machine gun and ripping through your soul. do, Do you not know your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? And here's the famed statement that goes against everything our culture believes. You are not your own. You've been bought at a high price. Honor God with your bodies. Jesus said in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, keyword daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and to lose their soul? Or one of the rarest verses preached in churches now that is so absolutely needed at this moment, in this cultural moment, is, is Matthew 19:12. There are eunuchs who are born that way. This is Jesus. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. The one who can can accept this should accept it. So let me ask you probably the question you did not expect to hear this morning. Do you have the gift of celibacy? Do you want the gift of celibacy? Some are saying yes, many are saying no. But the greater question is, are we all willing to obey Jesus and practice the discipline of chastity physically, emotionally, sexually, and virtually? the sexual conversation is not elevated over any other conversation. And I understand, in my own journey and in your journey, there's so much pain connected to this. But I just wanna say that we are called to be radically countercultural, And one way we do that is we actually invite the Lordship and the healing of the Spirit into the sexual component of our life. Now the last gift that I wanna talk about in this series, probably you've never heard a sermon on, or rarely, Many are not sure if this is a gift. I think it is, I think. (laughs) It's called the gift of martyrdom. It comes actually from 1 Corinthians 13, the passage we all read at weddings, and we just sort of miss this part as we're reading as everyone's smiling. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver myself up to my body to be burned, but not have love, I I gain nothing. Now remember, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are all about gifts. We've talked about the role of character and Paul is talking about why love must be predominant, why love is actually the greatest gift you should pray for. And notice, he's listing a group of genuine spiritual gifts he's already spoken about. Tongues, prophecy, faith, giving, all supernatural gifts. And then he says, but if you don't have love, what a mess. But it's the last part of the last verse that gives us pause, because then Paul says, in the same tone, with the same emphasis, just like gifts, if I suffer, if I'm killed for Jesus, and it seems to be a gift like the other's. Now, if you read the scriptures, you know the scriptures are full of those who suffer and die for the sake of our movement. And when you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, there is this shocking moment where there seems to be a sovereignly assigned group of people who suffer and die for the sake of Jesus and the good news. It says in Revelation 6-9, I saw under the altar of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. So is martyrdom a gift, most likely? And here's how one person wrote it. The gift of martyrdom is a special ability to undergo suffering for the Christian faith, even to death, while constantly displaying a joyous and victorious attitude that brings glory to God. Now most of us, within the sound of my voice today, do not realize, but in the last 10 years, the last decade, the Christian church has has experienced the highest level of persecution in 2,000 years. Open Doors just released this information about the last two years. Let me just read it to you. Every month, 255 Christians are murdered for their faith. 104 Christians are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage to destroy their faith. 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned every single month. World Watch just released uh, these stats that says one out of 12 Christians globally live in an environment where persecution is genuine and real. World uh, World Watch also released the 2018 summary of persecution. In 2018, the year we just celebrated leaving, 3,066 Christians were formally murdered because they were Christians. 1,252 were abducted, 1,020 women were raped and harassed, and 793 churches were attacked. I don't know if you've even followed this on the news. In the last seven days, the Chinese government has just shut down the fourth largest church in China and said to their members they must sign an agreement that they will never go back to church again. Christian suffering and death, ultimate giving, is not like we see in other movements. Oh, many other people are martyrs in other religions and in other movements, and when you watch the news and you listen, when they kill in the name of God or they kill in the name of another movement, they kill and then they themselves become killed, suicide bomber, no, no, that's not how we do this. When Christians are martyred or suffer, we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us, we bless them. As Jesus died, as he experienced the gift of martyrdom, what did he say? Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. The very first Christian to die in our movement was a man named Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned to death, and I don't want to be graphic, but can you imagine how brutal that is? We have it recorded in Acts chapter seven. It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had done this, he died. The story of Stephen is graphic and beautiful because as the persecution, first one, broke out against our movement, Christians ran for their lives, but an amazing thing took place. As they ran for their lives, they told everyone about the good news of Jesus as they ran, and as Jesus had predicted and declared that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, the murder of Stephen was the starting gun for the gospel to go to the rest of the world. And they actually, the Holy Spirit used that even to bring Saul of Tarsus to faith. In other words, God takes hate and death and assault and brings life and forgiveness And the scriptures are clear that all those who suffer in this lifetime for the sake of the gospel will be rewarded personally by Jesus for their work. Now all of us, if you are a Christian, are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We're not to look for it, but it will happen. Peter wrote these really uncomfortable words in 1 Peter 2.21. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving all of us an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So we are all called to the discipline of suffering for the gospel, whether our family make fun of us or we have to stand in a culture and our culture says one thing and we say another, whatever it is. But some are gifted in a different way. It was the famed church father, Tertullian, that famously wrote these words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the implication of what he was saying is if you kill one of us, we grow like a weed. (laughs) You kill one and there's seven more of us. Kill seven, then there's 14 of us. Do you have this gift? Do you want it? Are you open to giving your life in part or all for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Now, I I know what's going on in the crowd. (laughs) Lots of us have this mentality that we think if we don't say it out loud, God can't hear us. (laughs) We also, for some reason, I don't know if it's a Western thing, believe that if we say it out loud, then it's suddenly the deal is sealed. I want to remind everyone this morning that God is good and God is a good father and he's loving and he does not want us to be filled with anxiety or fear but we are called to ask and remember the world is tired of words. Our our world is now driven by PR and social media and those aren't wrong but it's just there's a constant noise the world is wondering if there is something called radical commitment. And let me tell you, the discipline of chastity and the spiritual gift of celibacy and the suffering for the Christian faith and the willingness to suffer and even die, well, that, no, that is radical commitment. Now, that brings us to the end of the formal list we find in Scripture of 21 plus gifts, and now I want to address two last things. Next week, we're gonna come back one last time, and we're gonna talk about the difference between revival, disciplines, and gifts, and what God is actually saying to us as a whole church, and I really wanna encourage you to come back because um, there's some very significant things afoot, but I wanna address gift tension one last time, and I wanna talk about grace. Remember, there is at least 21 supernatural, Holy Spirit-given gifts, in the church that go in 21 different directions. And when you're so passionate and gifted in one or two areas, you naturally think everyone else should care and be as passionate about where you're gifted in. But I wanna remind all of us again today that we are not called to independence and we are not called to dependence, we are called to interdependence. But actually, we who've done church for a while have all experienced the tough, difficult moments in church because church is like a family and family's dysfunctional on the best of days but much of the fights that happen in churches we think are based on personality or church culture or style and that's true. But actually one of the largest things sitting in the room perpetually is gift tension and it's hardly ever if never talked about. I've mentioned this, but let me give some examples again of gift tension. When you spend time with someone who's got the amazing gift of mercy, and that's not your gift, and you'll note they're deeply moved and passionate about helping the one person or or that marginalized group, and when everyone else doesn't rally around their current need provoking the needed outpouring of mercy, they can in their heart have a root of bitterness start or even start saying out loud, what's wrong with this church? Can't they see the need? I've read my Bible. God's close to the poor and you don't like the poor. So are you even a Christian? Uh oh. Can't they feel the desperation? Don't, don't, they, don't they care? Maybe I should go somewhere else where they really take the Bible seriously in this area. Give tension. See, our spiritual gifts make us almost respond instinctively with supernatural sensitivity to a situation that places us there. Now, that's not saying we should not all be alerted and involved in mercy, but when you say what's wrong with you, the Lord is saying, why aren't you doing your job? Remember I made the joke about hanging out with those who have the gift of intercession of prayer? And you're like, hey, how you doing? I'm fine, I'm good. How's your week? Okay, pretty good. How's your spiritual life? Yeah, bad bad week, only an hour and a half of prayer every day. And you're like, ah. I think I blessed the Swiss Chalet once. And in that moment, if you utter that out loud to an immature person with a gift of intercession, they will look at you, they will cock their head usually and say, don't you love Jesus? Why are you such a Martha? You know, Mary was closer to Jesus, she was always busy, but if, if you just spend more time with Jesus like I do, oh, you'd hear him a lot more, that's why you don't hear. And then it gets even more awkward and angry when they say back to you, can I pray for you? You're like, no. Okay, right, gift tension. Now, the point is, if the person with intercession, I'm just using it as an example, understood discipline versus gift, there'd be so much more grace. As mentioned earlier, there are great examples of gift tension in the Bible. It happens right at the beginning in the book of Acts. In Acts 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing. In other words, during a revival, thousands of people are becoming Christians, by the way, at this moment. Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against Abraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We're going to turn the responsibility over to them, and we're going to give our attention to prayer and the ministry through the word and the word of God spreads. So you've got two groups of Jewish people from different, semi-different ethnic backgrounds. One group considered themselves more Jewish than the other group. There's ethnic tension brewing. By the way, it existed all pre-Jesus. Now they're all followers of Jesus. And have you ever met someone when they become a Christian, They're like, oh, I'm great. My whole past is dealt with. And you're like, yes, salvation is given to you. You still got to deal with your stuff. And the church is filled with all the stuff. And they turn on each other, and it's amazing, in this moment of crisis, during a revival, the leaders of the church say the most unpastoral, get yourself fired thing you can say. They show up and said, it would be wrong, sinful for us to help widows. Can you imagine me preaching? No, 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 I'm not helping widows. You'd be like, are you a pastor, you, wh- what? And they're like, no, 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 understand, it would not be right for what, us. Why? Oh, because our responsibility, we have to keep the rudder of the ship. We need to keep preaching and helping the community understand the word of God and prayer. So let's find those who have the other spiritual gifts. And what's happening in this beautiful moment is out of a crisis, more gifts are identified. And then at the end of it, guess what? More people come to faith, not less. But when we have the the perception, but the real ministry is where the widows are. And the teachers over here know the real ministry is where the teaching is. And the answer is yes, not either or. Get your corner and do your job and tag in. The best example of gift tension in the Bible happens between two beloved leaders that we all respect. Between Barnabas and Paul. It's found in Acts 15. It's nine chapters later. Which tells you why, the, by the way, gift tension never leaves. <laughs> Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas said, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns, towns where we preach the word of God and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. And Paul did not think it was wise to take him because John Mark had deserted them in Penphylia and not continued the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. So, who's wrong? Every person with shepherding and mercy and exhortation, you who are sheep-centric are like, Paul is continually a donkey. He doesn't care about people. He, you know, on, and every leader in the room is like, drop John Mark. He can't get his crap in order. We're out of here. Who's right? They both are. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, by the way, was so angry at Paul. Do you know why? Because he did this for Paul. When Paul was murdering Christians and then radically encountered Jesus, who discipled Paul for two and a half to three years? Who got him the entrance back to Peter, James, and John? Barnabas literally gave his life to Paul like he wants to give it to John Mark. Why? Because he had the gift of encouragement and the gift of shepherding. Paul was a teacher, apostolic leader who wanted to take the gospel where? To the whole world. And when Paul and Barnabas don't stop And look at each other and understand the disagreement was based on gift. That they did not reconcile for a very long time. Now here's the good news. When Barnabas went one way and Paul went the other way, guess what? The church still grew. And then it says later they came back together and reconciled. But this fight didn't need to happen if they had had the immaturity. And I'm saying this about St. Paul and St. Barnabas. If they had had the maturity to realize in the moment, it wasn't just they were angry, it was gift tension. Paul needed to take the gospel to the world and Paul and Barnabas wanted to mentor John Mark. Who's wrong, no one, they both should have done it but they should have done it in a different way. This is such a critical thing for us to understand and leads us to the last thing. We need so much grace for each other. Here's what I've seen in churches and experienced firsthand in this church. Most people tend to be grace-filled when it comes to the love gifts, sort of grace-filled when it comes to the word gifts, and there's usually no grace for the power gifts. If I get up and preach a Sunday morning, on a Sunday morning and I preach a message, and it's not my best message, and it's not that dazzling, and it's a little rambling, and I don't get everything right, or actually, let's say I preach an amazing message, but my character isn't great that morning, and my gestures are my tone, and there's obviously a character issue. Most people will come, please, 24 hours later, give us the day. You'll come and they'll say, you know what, what's going on with you? Are you okay? That wasn't really clear. Could you work on that? Is everything okay in your heart? You wouldn't come up and say, behold, I have a statement for you, John Thompson. You are a false prophet and a heretic. You have never had the gift of teaching out because I had a bad Sunday. But the problem is when it comes to power gifts, there's this weird perception in the church that they become fully formed. Oh, see, they misuse tongues, devil. Really? Breathe. Just Whoa. So why do we think that some gifts have to be fully formed and it's 100% or nothing, but other gifts you can mentor and have some time with? There are 21 gifts plus in our church. Every single one of us has to grow in love with each other and with God. And we have to give people space to find out even if they have the gift. How will you know unless you try? You're not going to find out if you have the gift of healing until you try to do it. And if it doesn't work, we don't go false, Satan. You go, oh, maybe not my gifting. And we have to give each other incredible grace to learn. That's why we all need mentors in our life. We need to find people in our life that have gifts like us so they can tell you all the mistakes they made so you don't need to repeat it. But my plea is this, that we need incredible grace and we need to remember, we always need to remember that what we're most passionate about usually is connected to gift orientation And yes, it's incredibly important, but it's only one of 21 things going on. That's why we need to let each other work together. So how do we respond today? Well, number one, we've done this now for multiple weeks. If you have not come forward yet to be prayed over by elders and by pastors and leaders in our church, and you have a spiritual gift, every one of us who is a Christian do. We want you to come forward. We want to pray for your character. We want to pray that God affirms the gifts in you and, and uses Him and given, gives you the power that He's decided to give you. So if you've not come forward for administration, helps, mercy, giving, teaching, encouragement, also called exhortation, apostleship, leadership, shepherding, evangelism, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, intercession, faith, discernment of spirits, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, works of power, healing, and now celibacy and martyrdom, we want you to come forward. And like we say every week, you can come forward and say, Lord, I would like this gift, and he might say yes or no, we'll pray. You might come forward and say, I think I have this gift and we'll pray about that. But we want this moment of affirmation and empowerment and God to just purify our motives as we use these gifts for the common good and for his glory. And I know some of you are like, I haven't come up yet because the lines, I know, but come forward. Second of all, I just want to say this again, with with no um, shame attached to this, and no weird guilt attached to this, do you need to repent for not obeying Jesus in the area of sex or sexuality? Uh, Do you need to come forward, and you don't have to be in detail, by the way, and just say, I've not obeyed Jesus. Um, You have either been involved in something you're not allowed to personally or with others, Um, you've heard what the scriptures say and you just disagree and you refuse to submit. Uh, There's a lot of reasons. Um, Maybe you're in a married context and you're actually not actually giving yourself to your spouse and they're asking for that and that's a conversation. That's not, not in the context of abuse, by the way. Mutuality, but it's there. If you need to come forward and just ask for the presence and the power of God in the sexual dimension of your life, We want you to come forward. And again, remember what God says. Uh, There is nothing that cannot be forgiven. Uh, there There is no need or longing that God cannot fulfill. And this is a moment of holiness. This is where we are saying to the Holy Spirit, you are most welcome to bring the Lordship of Jesus into my life. And maybe you need to come forward and say, actually, I need healing and even in the first uh, service here at Ajax, incredible moments of not only confession, but real significant healing. Third of all, let me talk to you about how maybe you need to respond publicly about gift tension. Some of you are Barnabas, and you have given your life to a Paul-like figure, and it's painful to see them move on. And I just wanna say two things to you. Number one, It was worth it, and God sees what you've done, and he will honor you for your work and your mentorship in their life, even if they have moved on beyond you. But maybe you need to come forward and say, you know what, I'm Barnabas, and actually I've been bitter at um, uh, people I've given my life to as they've moved on, and just, just maybe you can come forward about that. Maybe you're Paul, and you've never gone back to thank your Barnabas And by the way, can I encourage you to do that? I've, I've reflected on this for years. You know, all of us, when we become Christians, become Christians through someone else, whether it's a family or a friend or another church. And a lot of times if you get saved in another church community, you have this radical encounter with Jesus in some form, in some way, and you're in that church, and then you grow up a little bit more, and you read your Bible more, and in some cases, you go, you know what, I I love these people, and I love this church, but actually, I don't agree with everything anymore. On the primary stuff, yes. The secondary stuff, no, I'm I'm out. And it's almost, it's like you evolve beyond them in your mind. They would say the same thing about you, by the way. And then you're like, well, I'm done with them, because I got saved there, but now I'm going to the real thing. Can I just ask you to have the humility to go back to the church or the leader or the person that led you to Christ that now you disagree with on secondary things like gifts or women in ministry or style of baptism or worship style or what, and just thank them. They need to know it was worth it if you can. It's incredibly important that we honor our spiritual elders And so much of this moving on and I'm done causes so much pain and question in the church. I think lots of us might need to rethink not all but many of our old wounds through the lens of gifts. Remember I was speaking actually at Alpha Headquarters in Vancouver and they asked me to come in and do gift identification for their staff which was really fun because there was Baptists and Pentecostals and Anglicans and Catholics all in one room, me time at gifts. It was wild. (laughs) The whole dysfunctional family. But I remember sitting there and uh, a man in his, I'd put him at 58, ministry his whole life, key staff, ran up to me after and he just said, thank you so much, it's no problem. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, In my own church context, I've been having such a conflict, and I now realize it's completely about gifts. I need to literally make a call right now and reconcile. Could you ask the Holy Spirit to just show you in your church walk if some of what you've experienced that has jaded you, made you unbelieving, hurt, or uncomfortable, maybe has to do more with gifts than it does personality or other things? Because that can get resolved. And so uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you stand and let's uh, ask the Father and the Son to send the Holy Spirit among us into this very beautiful holy moment just to to speak. So number one, thank you. Like we've said almost every week, if not every week, we're not orphans, that the Holy Spirit's in us. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you that Jesus uh, died and rose again and we have hope. Thank you. And now, Lord, we wanna pray. For any person in our church at all that has the gift of celibacy or martyrdom, and you've just spoken, some are shocked this conversation is happening, I pray for incredible joy and peace and that the kingdom of God would show up. For all of us, uh, we want to say as a whole church, we welcome the Holy Spirit into the sexual stories of this church unashamedly, we welcome you. And I know as I'm saying that people are resisting this, but no, in Jesus' name, welcome Holy Spirit into the things we've done right, the things we've done wrong, and even the things done against us that cause so much pain. We welcome the Holy Spirit. We pray for, you know, we'll say this biblically, real sexual healing in Jesus' name. We also pray, Lord, that you would convict us where we have not served our spouse or we have not uh, loved you and we've not honored God with our bodies and we repent of our sin. And Lord, we also pray, too, in this moment, there's so much conversation that needs to come out of this. Would you organize and, and help those conversations go way beyond a sermon? A third of all, Lord, we pray for every Barnabas and Paul among us um, that there would be, uh, the Holy Spirit would thank people, that the Holy Spirit would convict people, that there'd be reconciliation uh, and thanks given between churches and leaders and people out of this moment. But also Holy Spirit, if you have brought people to mind or situations that need healing, just would this happen in this this moment as people come forward uh, after the service is done. So uh, Father and Son, guard the space. Uh, No shame in this room, in any room that I'm speaking to in Jesus' name, no guilt only what's from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We just ask this and are incredibly thankful that your scripture is not just relevant, but it's life-giving in this moment. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.